Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome Sergey Gribov, general partner at Flint Capital. Sergey shares his evolution as a startup operator to venture capitalist and what drove the change in roles and how his startup experience has shaped his support for founders. We dig into Sergey's journey growing up in Israel and why the Israeli startup ecosystem has been so successful and resilient for so many years, even as it grapples with the current conflict. Sergey also shares his thoughts around how startups should think about expansion to the U.S. and from overseas and how to know when is the right time to enter new markets. Lastly, Sergey shares his thoughts on the potential rise of management-led buyouts in today's startup world and why we might see more of them in venture-backed startups that are underwater. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Sergey Gribov from Flint Capital. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Sergey. Thanks for inviting me. You know, Sergey, I remember speaking with you actually back in 2018 when we first started investing out of our first fund at Ripple regarding the IoT space and a cybersecurity deal that we were looking at. And I recall how incredibly thoughtful and insightful you were around the market and the competitive landscape at that time. But, you know, it's been a while uh, and it would be great to get a refresh on your background, your journey into startups and the investing world, obviously for myself and our listeners to kick things off. Sounds good. So uh, my original background is technical. I graduated computer science. Uh, I was living in Israel at that point in time, and I joined as employee number one in one of the successful startups. So I kind of worked in startups all my life. I think I spent in a big company through the whole career about two months. I was bored to death and jumped to another startup. After all, I kind of Switched to a dark side, went to MIT, did business degree, started to do some angel investments, and I joined Flint more than seven years ago, seven eight. Flint, it's an early stage fund. Uh, we invest a little bit different from most of the funds because we're on a completely distributed shop from the beginning. The team is distributed between Boston, Europe, and Israel. And we do a lot of investments in Israel. We do some investments in Europe, some in the US. With the early stage across pretty broad spectrum, B2C, B2B, enterprise SaaS, cybersecurity, fintech, digital health, we can invest pretty much in anything which we can understand. You know, I, you skipped over, I mean, your incredible career as an operator, as an entrepreneur. You know, you said you started out uh, at a pretty successful tech company in Israel. You know, what was that experience like being an entrepreneur at that time when the ecosystem in Israel was still getting going? And then what eventually, you know, decided for you to make the shift over to MIT and do a business degree? I wasn't the founder of a company. I was employee number one after founders. I was, uh, I was still in university, actually. I didn't even finish my degree yet when I joined the company as a uh, as a first programmer, uh, but the fun thing when you first employ of a company which is growing quickly, you can do a lot of different things. So instead of just doing the regular career, you go through many years being founder, team lead, etc. During my tenure and competition, that's the name of a company, I done bunch of completely different things. I was uh, responsible for software development at some point. I was responsible for pretty much all our worldwide customer support, GM of US. I was responsible for cyber. I was responsible for operations. So I, I kind of done different tasks, which was really fun because I, I could try a lot of different things. So it kind of jumpstarted uh, to a career. Talking about ecosystem, yeah, it was, uh, it was what, 93 uh, and later. And I moved to US around 97, still working for a company setting up an office here. It was an early stage of Israeli ecosystem. It 
back then, right now, you have a lot of Israeli unicorns and everybody kind of trying to build a unicorn. Back then, people would build a great technology and usually sell it to one of the big corporations for $100, $200 million. That was the state of Israeli ecosystem back then. People were still kind of figuring out how to do go-to-market correct, how to sell in U.S. There were not that many people who knew how to do it. So it, same thing was going on in the company. It was kind of building the plane we fly it, basically. You have a really small team of people. It, it's actually funny when I think about it. Uh, from the start of the competition, in 10 months, we delivered the first product to first customers, uh, which was Mac Pharmaceutical. And talking about the product, it was a kind of special purpose supercomputer de- designed for specific algorithms. And the whole team which delivered that was four people, including the person who was selling. It was really a great journey in terms of like learning how things worked, et cetera. Yeah, I think like for those who haven't read the book Startup Nation, it's obviously one of the the greatest stories of how the you know Israeli tech ecosystem got started. But from what I remember, you know, because everyone kind of spun out of the IDF and they were building in cyber or some security and infrastructure type software companies, it was really like you were trading IP around at that time because the businesses were so sophisticated as outsource R and D shops for some of the large corporates to acquire for a hundred, two hundred million rather than spending you know, five, 10 years trying to build what they could do with four people in 10 months, let's say in Israel. But the revenue and go to market engine wasn't really built into that ecosystem until a little bit later. And it sounds like that's what motivated you to learn about coming over to the US, going to MIT, Sloan, and then eventually into venture capital. So what was that shift like for you? In terms of MIT, it was it was a little bit later. I basically, I, after the competition, I joined couple other startups, some successful, some less successful. And at some point I was at my kind of career, I was kind of thinking about what I want to do next. I could go as kind of the PRND CTO, technical founder in a, uh, in a startup and I can grow to bigger companies. But my problem was what I, I really hate politics and every company where you see more than 200 people, you usually have a lot of politics. So I kind of said to myself, okay, I don't want to go to bigger company. Like 200 people, that's probably the biggest company I'm willing to work at. And uh, at that point in time, I thought maybe it's a good idea to start learning business, to kind of switch to the business side of things. So I was in another startup uh, called Vivox, where I was part of a founding team. And I kind of decided, okay, I'm going to take a break and went to MIT, did business degree. And basically afterwards, I started to do some angel investment. I started a couple companies, initiatives, and that kind of led me to a little bit later on to join Flint as a partner in US. You know, it's interesting because like you've had so much operating experience wearing many hats as like a, you know, early employee, number one, or pseudo founder of a bunch of companies. Uh, and then you wrote angel checks. You know, when you started writing angel checks, obviously, I assume you were doing them in Israel and, and in Europe and in the US. Was there any noticeable differences between the the companies that you were backing at that time as an angel that you uh, have learned from and have tried to avoid now as a professional VC investor? It kind of happened kind of accidentally. Uh, what happens, my first angel check, I wrote to the same company. I was part of a founding team, VWorks 
what happens with a company, the company raised back in, I think we started around 2003, 2004, we raised a lot of money from really good funds like Benchmark, Kenyan. It was total of 20, I don't remember exact number, but more than $20 million. But the problem is the company was doing okay, but not great. Basically, the, uh, I, I left the company when I went to MIT. I never returned to the company, but I always uh, had a good contact with uh, the rest of the team. And fast forward eight years, the company was doing around $3 million in revenue kind of cash flow zero. For venture funds, it's not an interesting investment, especially when they're at the end of the life of, the, uh, of their fund. So what happens, guys wanted to do kind of management buyout. And basically, I that was my first check as an angel. I also helped to bring a bunch of additional investors. So we bought the company back from VCs for $3 million. And in five years, it was sold to Unity 400. So it was really good investment. It, it, it was kind of accidental. And then when I did this investment, I'm a really good friend with uh, Sivandu Kach, who is one of the angels here, actually running now a venture fund now. And I kind of came to him and I said, this is an interesting opportunity. And he said, yeah, it's it's interesting opportunity. But if you're really thinking about writing angel check, you should never do it in one company. You should always go for some kind of diversification. I kind of thought about it and said, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. So basically I decided, okay, that's the amount of money I'm willing to spend on it. I kind of, big portion of this money I put as a check in VWOX because I knew company very well. It was the same team. It was the same vision when we started. And I wrote a couple of checks, uh, small checks to, I think, six or seven additional companies. Vivox was, was a great success. It was more than 20x. Uh, I think out of these checks, I got two exits, which were like three-ish X exit. A uh, couple companies already done, disappeared, and one or two are still uh, alive and kicking. So it was relatively good run, but it's not like I kind of, purposely decided I'm going to do, I'm going to be angel investor now and I'm going to be doing doing it for the full time. I, it was kind of accidental. Yeah, it's interesting that the VC funds obviously, you know, went into the same investment you did as an angel from the beginning with hopefully the same idea of like what this thing could become. But because venture funds are structured from like a 10 year life and they've got, you know, this, you know, this whole fund that they have to return it's not deal by deal carry usually, and they have to return the whole fund before they start to see real any profits. The mechanics of which they decide when to shut something down or walk away from it are very different from an angel. You know, an angel could be in something for a very long time. And it kind of worked well in your favor almost that the VC funds had to be forced out of a position that they basically funded the majority of, I assume, over those eight years, walked away from it with, you know, cents on the dollar. And then you as an angel, scooped in, bought it with friends and stuff for $3 million and then grew this thing into a $100 million exit. Like Those are really interesting stories because the constraints of a VC fund are much worse when things don't work out versus when an angel can kind of recap something on its own, right? Yeah, and the incentives are a little bit different. As an angel, if you invest and you're getting two free acts, you're happy uh, because it's a good outcome. As VC, you're usually looking for much bigger outcomes. You're usually kind of trying to shoot for 100 acts, 
10x. And basically, you incent- uh, VCs kind of incentivize go big or go home for most of the cases. So they would push company to take more risks with oppor- uh, with potential to, to create a bigger opportunities, which not always work well. Uh, in, in this case, for example, the opportunity market-wise just wasn't that big at point in time when VCs invested. It's actually, uh, the company was in uh, voice communications, kind of embedded voice communications, mostly for gaming. So back in 2004, 2005, it was an interesting opportunity, but not big enough to build a big company. And the problem is when you raise like 20 million, VCs are trying to push you for really big outcomes. Like even 100 million is not interesting enough for them. And in the case of Angels, when first we invested, it was a different time. So it was the market was actually better. But it's still, uh, when we invested, and I never thought it, it's, it has a chance to be a billion dollar company, but 100 million dollar outcome when you Angel and you invested at 3 million, it's very good outcome. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you want, what I'd love to hear your thoughts are is, You've obviously seen the Israel ecosystem start from its early days in the 90s and all the different kind of founders that have come out of that you know, ecosystem. But you know, based on your experience as an operator and obviously as an investor there, what are some of the most common traits that you see from Israeli startup founders versus some of the American or maybe European founders that you've backed over the years? I, I love Israeli ecosystem. I'm, we probably when more than half of our portfolio currently are Israeli startups and I'm dealing with most of them. Uh, I have a principal in Israel on the ground and I'm usually in Israel every couple of months. What I love about the ecosystem, it's very, very collaborative. So for example, uh, VCs in the US would talk to each other, we kind of collaborate on deals. Uh, but you don't feel this. Uh, you don't feel the same level of collaboration in Israel ecosystem. For example, there is a WhatsApp chat, one or two representative of every single VC fund which exists in Israel, and it's very active. And it's very active, not just guys that have a company which is raising who is interested to talk to them. It's more m- most of the stuff where it's uh, can anybody introduce me to this company or do anybody knows how to do that. And people are helping each other. It's actually on the same level when you talk about founders. Founders help each other. And I know even cases when founders of direct competitors, like two startups directly competing, the founders will still talk to each other and help each other from time to time, which is really amazing. Why do you think that is? We think about Israel, the country is well connected. If I look at LinkedIn, somebody from Israeli ecosystem Usually, I see more than 100 common connections. If it's somebody from Israeli tech ecosystem and I see less than 50 connections, it usually means what the person is complete social part or something like that. (laughs) Because everybody knows everybody. And because everybody knows everybody, it's it's very interesting in terms of... uh, In Israel, for example, nobody ever asks for references because everybody expects you're going to get your own references. The way it works, when I meet a founder, I want to learn about him. Uh, I look on LinkedIn and see who connects us and ask people around. The same thing they are doing on me. It's fairly often happening what uh, I would meet a startup and a couple of days afterwards, one of my founders would write me on WhatsApp. Did you talk to these guys? Uh, yeah. 
Why? Oh, they were asking about you. So because of it, it's kind of the ecosystem, like the whole paid forward, it, it's really working there because everybody knows uh, if you're doing good things and as a two-sided sword, everybody knows if you're doing some, some bad things. The feedback loop is quite quick, whether good or bad. Oh, yeah. It kind of feels like one big kibbutz, basically. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's your and, ecosystem. Yeah, and and everybody understands the value uh, because uh, if I if I help you today, you will help somebody else tomorrow, and at the end, everybody wins. It's kind of win-win situation, so it, it's just natural for people to help each other. That's one thing. Uh, I also like Israelis because they, I just love to work with them because they're direct. Instead of like going around and saying nice things, they would just tell you if you, if you're full of shit, they would just tell you it in the face. So the opposite of uh, maybe Canadian VCs. <laughs> Canadian, uh, Canadians are usually even more polite than Americans one. And for my taste, Americans are way too polite. That's very funny. You know, I got to ask you though, because there's obviously been a lot of success in Israel with a lot of the ecosystem as of late, you know, a lot of uh, founders have become VCs or angels themselves. How have the VCs and the founder slash new, you know, uh, angel communities interacted with each other and also kind of cohabitate? Everybody's talking to each other. Everybody, by now I've been active in Israeli ecosystem and VC ecosystem for what, for seven, eight years, I would probably know at least one or two partners in every venture fund in Israel, and that's the same goes to everybody else. So people are very collaborative, as I, uh, as I said. People work well. Uh, there different funds have different strategies. So you have some funds in Israel who have strategy. They take the whole round, usually. But most of the funds like to work together. So we, for example, we never take the whole round. We always like to work with syndicates. I think it's better for the company. I, I think it's better for you as investors. You kind of distribute risk a little bit. You have a, more heads around the table to help company. In Israel, for example, I don't, I'm trying to remember, but I don't think I, I know any VC who came from like investment banking kind of background. Most of the VCs are kind of ex-operators or at least they on average more technical than VCs in years. They've been in the shoes of the founders, a lot of them. So the dynamics are a little bit more like on the same level, helping each other. And it's kind of interesting. You also see in, in many cases the situations when it's a second founder, it's a successful entrepreneur. So you don't feel these dynamics like we see is actually telling the entrepreneur what, what we need to do. It's more kind of collaborative dynamic. You can have really good relationships with most of the founders. It's more open. In, in general, Israelis are way more open. Uh, the directiveness and like willingness both to give and to take feedback, honest feedback also helps. So, you know, how are you managing, obviously, with everything going on now? You're obviously engaged in reserve duty. How are you ma maintaining business operations for your founders who have been called to the front lines right now? So we, we, we're trying to help in a way, shape or form. Frankly, for the first weeks, I, I don't think I did any work related to the actual work. It was mostly getting donations, getting things, 
including tactical gear and whatever to people, then you kind of get back to uh, what they need to do. But even now, big portion of my time and time to help people. The great thing about Israel is resilience. Israel delivers n- no matter what. On most of the calls with my startups, uh, we're going over with things. And like pre- uh, it, it, different startups have different number of people who were called up to reserves. It's frankly, it's not that huge of a number for most of the startups. At Maxwell, I think in my startups, I have a company which have about 15% of the people called up for reserves. One, five percent. Uh, yeah, and some even smaller. But the thing is, it's still even people who not called up for reserves, they involved with a bunch of different things on a volunteering basis. Psychologically, it's very hard. So every, but, but the good thing about it, the whole country is kind of mobilized. The whole country is trying to help each other. I wouldn't say what it's easy, but from another side, uh, I don't think, like, when I look through my startups, for example, I don't think the performance went down in general. Like, most of the startups, whoever is not in the reserve, it kind of stepped up. Uh, most of the startups are performing as well, is if not better than uh, they were doing before the war. Now, have you had any LPs in the fund uh, ask any questions about, you know, contingency plans or anything like that, or are they all kind of self-aware of the situation? Uh, we, we had questions from LPs, uh, so we explained what's going on, we explained what's happening, and uh, actually, I think we, we understand, at least most of our LPs, we are kind of okay, we understand what's going on, we understand what Israel will win, and they will come and but after the war, when everything kind of understand it's temporary kind of thing, uh, and on top of it, frankly, I, I see I see rounds in Israeli startups. We're still raising some rounds. Deals are still getting done. Uh, not even performed according to the plan, but we actually over delivered in terms of revenue growth, etc. So everything is working. It's I think actually after the war, a lot of VCs, and I, I, I heard this feedback from some American VCs who kind of invest in Israeli startup, but that's not their main kind of target. Uh, I've heard from some of them, and I think it's true, what one thing their current situation shows is how resilient Israel is. And I'm sure you're aware what when you invest in a startup, resilience is one of the most important things for every startup. Because 90% of the time, it's all about just putting out fires and trying to stay alive. And so there's nobody that can do it more than in the middle of a war zone. So, you know, good luck to all your companies there. I, I just want to switch gears while we have you. You know, the market obviously has had a lot of ups and downs. You know, your firm uh, is headquartered in Boston in the U.S. OpenView has recently, you know, kind of shut down their team uh, and in maintaining the status quo. You know, what are your thoughts on the VC ecosystem in general and the market overall? Uh, and what kind of opportunities are you seeing right now in terms of down rounds, extension rounds, you know, maybe up rounds uh, for the next foreseeable future? I wouldn't commit on open view. I think what happens there, I, I, I don't have that much information, but I think what happens where it's more personal thing when related to the market front, because as far as I understand, we just raised the funds, so we had no problem operating forward, but it was like, some of the partners wanted to kind of switch gears and that's what happened. As far as markets, so what happens, there were really big oversupply of money in recent years. If you look at the amount of 
dry powder and venture funds, how it grew from like 18 to 19, 19 to 20, 20 to 21, it was just going through the roof. What it created, the number of startups wasn't growing that much. So it's it's a usual supply-demand. You have demand is money, supply is, is startups. So you have same amount of startups, twice more money. What happens? The price goes up. 21 was really crazy in terms of valuations. Everybody would uh, rise huge rounds at crazy valuations. And then came 22, which was a kind of cool down, and 23, a lot of funds, some funds I know had problems with LPs. We couldn't do capital calls. Some funds just kind of decided, okay, it's time to slow down. People, instead of raising the next fund, like before before 2020, usually most of the funds would raise next fund every three years. The whole thing kind of compressed. And in 21, people would just raising fund next year after we raised the previous. So it was really crazy. Uh, so what happens now in 23, a lot of funds kind of put on a brakes and some of the funds wouldn't invest at all. Some of the funds would really like mostly uh, invest in their portfolio companies. So the valuation went down. And uh, uh, frankly, uh, another thing which happens is the stock market went down. So you have multiples on the public market went down significantly. Multiples on the private market didn't come down that much as to match to the public market, but at some point it will have to match. So your public market will have to go up significantly or private market will have to go down. And that's when we're talking about like really latest stage, like growth rounds and pre-IPO rounds. And that kind of compressed the valuation down the line. So I think what happens, what in 23, the valuations for the growth round went down significantly. Now we're seeing valuation for like seed and A round went down but not as much as we should. I, I think there is still space to go down there. And I think another thing what, what's happening now, so you have all these companies which, craze, uh, which raised crazy rounds in 21 at like really crazy valuations. But multiples went down since then, so they can't really raise the up round even if they grew their revenue. Last year, most of these companies, if a company is bad, something not working, there is no product market fit, it's easy. The company would land out of business. But a lot of companies who were like good companies just at too crazy valuation in the previous round, they would uh, go back to their investors because they couldn't trace around externally and they would do bridges and extension rounds like last year. Now, what's, what I expect will be happening now, a lot of these companies who Still, some of the good ones grew revenue enough to get to the valuation we, we were getting a couple of years ago, but a lot of them are still not at, this, at the level they need to do an up round. So a lot of these companies will go to the market. Traction is not going to give them valuation they were expecting two years ago even. So these companies will have a choice. They will have to sell or close down, or they, they will have to do down rounds. So I do expect next six to nine months a lot of blood on the street, frankly, because of these dynamics. And I think we'll see a lot of resets and valuation companies will do down round, kind of get to the more reasonable valuations. I, I think it's good for the market because, frankly, at some point you need this reset. 
it's good for investors to you can suddenly now invest at reasonable valuations so i think it's uh, it's painful but it's it's a good feeling for market you know but it's interesting because you know venture has been gobbling up so much more of the assets available you know the money supply over the last several years but the returns have had an inverse correlation to that increase in assets you know you know if you look at the s&p for year to date returns is over 22% you know, NASDAQ's over 26% year-to-date returns. Yes, it was down 33%, you know, the year prior, but there is a liquidity premium for being an investor in the public market. So what do you think the justification is for LPs to still want to have exposure to venture capital when the more money that came in ended up putting negative returns into the market? Obviously, global macro issues aside, you know, do you think venture should stay within its own sort of realm of size of assets to deploy based on what the returns it can generate? Or do you think it will mature into one of these asset classes like private equity or other alts as well? Private equity, it's the same story like in venture. There were a lot of money which went to private equity back in 2021. It's the same story. Talking about from a LP point of view, Look, you're looking for, uh, as LP who is managing portfolio of assets, you're looking for diversification. So I think long-term venture is still going to be better returns for the public market because when you look at the venture, you shouldn't be looking at single-year return. You should look at like seven, eight years return. And seven, over the seven, eight years, if you look at public market compared to venture, uh, venture capital, you'll probably get better returns in venture capital. Uh, I think it's also diversification from maturity point of view because a lot of uh, insti- big institutional investors we're not we're not interested in uh, to put money to work for one or two years. We're interested to put money and kind of forget about them for like six, seven, eight years. Like the endowment pension sort of conversations of where they have to commit. Right? Uh, exactly. So you will. I, I think you will see it a little bit normalized because there was a lot of money available in 20 and 21 uh, and a lot of more uh, money went to venture. I think we'll see this number to go down to some more reasonable number, but it's still going to be attractive asset class for a lot of these investors. Yeah, maybe you're right. I think it's probably over a longer period of time, the right asset class, part of the mixture of assets in the bucket that LPs are looking for. You know, I want to get your thought though, because you say like, obviously there's a lot of companies out there that are kind of like walking zombies and they're going to have to do a big recap or shut down or something. You know, you had experience with this. You mentioned uh, prior in the, in the earlier part of the podcast about that $3 million, uh, you know, angel buyout. What are your thoughts about management buyouts? You know, can you discuss these in today's context and whether or not we'll see many more of them? So in startup world, management buyout doesn't usually not happen when often because uh, frankly, it's, uh, startups are very high risk investments. So if you are management of a startup at early stage, then it's at the later stage kind of, it's, it's a little bit different story, but usually at the later stage you need you need a lot of money. Let's say like a $10 million ARR business is uh, is still startup. Yeah, but $10 million ARR business, uh, in order to buy it out, you need a lot of money. So you need, uh, and for most of the management, it's just way too much money to risk in a single startup, even if you're managing it. So it's not happening that often. VWOX deal was kind of unique because the company was doing 
it's not it was not growing but it was doing fine in terms of uh, it was cash flow positive it was kind of cash flow zero but for three million revenue so it's like and plus at on top of it the unique situation because uh, the funds were at the end of their life and the problem is when your fund is like eight nine years old you need to get rid of uh, all the assets or distribute it somehow put on top of it the fund were actually top tier funds so for most of these top tier funds we already made so much money small company which is doing three million it just right. not worth the involvement it's a perfect storm for the so, angels so it was yeah. a pretty unique situation i think uh, what i see on the market now there is a lot of uh, kind of secondaries buyout all, all kind of secondary funds which are buy, uh, buying out Either positions in the companies or position or LP positions in funds, we'll see a lot of that. But uh, I think a lot of this is driven more by LP side than basically some specific LP really needs liquidity because his stock portfolio crashed or he he just need more money or he kind of gave up on these investments. These are dynamics I see a lot now. Uh, when you see secondary fund buying. LPs at like sometimes at 50% discount, 70% discounts. But I don't think management buyout will see a lot. I think some, maybe, but very specific situations. Yeah, if the market was up on it on its highs and people were just saying, you know what, forget about these like smallish, you know, three million dollar businesses. We don't really need them in our portfolio. It's more of a headache. We already have so many wins. That breeds, you know, opportunities for management bios or angel end bios. But when you know, everyone's funds are in the shitter and they're holding on to their winners, hoping that they hold on and they need liquidity. It's usually those are the ones that they sell first, not the shittiest ones. Uh, and that's what we're kind of seeing right now in the secondary market. You know, I got to ask, as the market is obviously changing quite rapidly, you know, we're seeing a pretty good end to the year here for the public markets. What advice do you have for founders who are not able to raise that bridge round, you know, before the holidays, but they are going into the new year with not so much optimism. What advice would you give to them to try to figure out the best path forward? I think we see some indications what the market is turning. I'm talking about like uh, venture investments. More and more funds are getting back to the market and investing. I think the expectations on valuations should be kind of reset. So founders who need to get to the market and basically raise money in January, February, start raising their next round, uh, they should be honest about the evaluation. Basically, whatever market is giving them, it's better to be alive with like down round than dead with no round. So uh, I think people should get kind of real with this valuation, whatever market is giving them. Live to play another day almost is not is more important than try to optimize for valuation. Yeah, the, sto- the story of a lot of startups is is exactly its resilience. It's basically if you survived for long enough, if you have a chance to, to become big. Uh, but if you, uh, I'm pretty sure what the number of startups who didn't uh, who potentially would become a big startups, but just didn't survive for one reason or another, is probably ten, or if not hundred, falls more than the startups who succeeded. So. You just need to survive another day. Just need to survive another day. Even Facebook had down rounds after their IPO. So it's uh, it's not uh, you know avoidable for everyone. All right. Well, before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. 
Uh, I like listening to a couple podcasts, which it's hard to say which is favorite. I, I love listening for 20, uh, 20 minutes. We see it's a really good podcast for everything related to venture capital. I also like, uh, like Lex Friedman podcasts. Uh, it's a different format. It's a format same as Jay Rogan, where you have more than enough time to talk about everything. So I really like to the in-depth conversations there. 20 minute VC versus three, four hour VC. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very different, different but topics. I totally agree. Uh, next is your favorite newsletter or blog? So I don't read, frankly, newsletters or blog per se. I usually, I have enough of the people, smart people I following on social media. So what I usually do, I go to social media and if everything, anything which important happened in the world, Usually you have somebody talking about it. And then I can dig deep and learn more about this stuff. But uh, I usually get most of the kind of highlights of what's going on from different social media. Nice. Next is your favorite tech gadget. That's a hard one. I have so many tech gadgets and I love to try uh, all of them. I think it's probably, uh, I'm a big fan of Pixel phones. I had Phones from Google, from Pixel 1, and they just never die. So every phone I had to change, one I lost when I was skiing somewhere. It's still probably running. Yeah, I from time to time when I need to upgrade the phone and I kind of see, think I this phone is four years old, I really need to upgrade it. i just thinking, what, what should I do with to finally break it? <laughs> Throw yourself off the side of a mountain in the Alps is a good idea. Yeah. yeah Next yeah, is your favorite yeah. new trend. I, I could say what I I love to play with things like ChatGPT and other LLMs, but that would be kind of uh, pretty much what everybody else is doing. I don't like when people say like things, are you investing in AI? I think it's just a technology and it's still, I, I think most of the people don't even realize what we can use this technology for yet. I think we'll see, we'll see it pretty much every industry, everything we do. So I I'm just love playing with it because what gives me kind of uh, ideas what it can be used for. Nice. Uh, next is your favorite book? As a business book, the, the one which I really love and I actually pretty much forcing every single of my founder to read is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. I, I, I just love it. I think it's the best book on negotiation. The other one, I don't even remember the name of the book, but when I was a kid, I used to have a book. It was 100 short stories about 100 different inventors, top 100 invest inventors or scientists of all the time, and everyone had three to four pages stories about him. And I remember I was reading this book back and forth like through many years. I, I even brought it originally from Russia to Israel and then from Israel uh, to US. Oh, I got to look for that one. That's amazing. And last but not least is your favorite life lesson. The role luck plays in our life. I think that's the most important lesson. So for example, uh, the way I found my first job in Compigen, uh, which kind of jumpstarted my career, I was going through a corridor in the university where I was studying and I saw the ad, which was like, just simple paper ad what we, uh, we're looking for founders, uh, for, for programmers, not founders. And if I think about it, that's kind of steered my whole career to certain space. If I would just take 
another route to the lecture hall, I would probably pass. But related to luck, uh, I have an interesting story. When I was at MIT, I don't remember, unfortunately, the guy who was uh, lecturing there. It was kind of one of the entrepreneurs who was invited to one of the lectures, successful entrepreneur, built a very big company. And he said, frankly, we, we were really struggling. And what really helped us to jumpstart the company, it was one big customer. And the interesting way we got this customer, he said, the customer opened Yellow Pages book back in like 80s. It was like big Yellow Pages books and just dialed a couple companies because he needed certain services. What the guy said, we were the company number five in the list in Yellow Pages. But I was the only guy who picked up the phone because I was at 10 p.m. at my work office. So that's kind of very important lesson what uh, luck really play a crucial role. But you need to be there to take advantage of this luck. You need to be at the right place at the right time, but you also have to have the, uh, as they say, chutzpah to actually take you know action on it and go forward with it. So very interesting. Thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with Sergey Gerbov, general partner at Flint Capital. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. It was fun. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague who'd benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.